Hey there. Welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to be getting into the spirit of Halloween. Uh, Don't worry, though. We know that real life is actually pretty freaky right now, so we're going in the treats direction. Uh, First, we're going to enter the mystical world of famed astrologer Walter Mercado, who for a time was probably the most famous and definitely the quirkiest psychic in the world. We're going to talk to the filmmakers behind a new Netflix documentary called Mucho, Mucho Amor. Then we're going to take a trip to the underworld, which also happens to be the setting for the musical Town. We're going to talk to Anais Mitchell, the creator of Town, about how the show started out as this very DIY project and then ended up on the Broadway stage where it won eight Tony Awards. That's the plan. We've got a great show for you. Stay with us. The Live Wire House Party gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hello, Luke. <laughs> Is that your ghost impression? Yes. <laughs> it's I love so it. good to see you. This is going to be a weird Halloween, you know, with all the social distancing and stuff. Have you acquired any candy yet? 0.00 candies, which might be the only Mm. silver lining is that (laughs) I never got to give trick-or-treaters trick-or-treats because I was either renting in a big apartment building or I did theater. So I was always busy on Halloween night. And we finally bought a house and I'd just buy these vats of candy, but they don't come Mm trick-or-treating to the door anymore. They do it like downtown. So then I'm just stuck eating Seven million calories of Snickers bars for all of November. So maybe it's good. My candy intake goes up very, very <laughs> steeply between like Halloween and Christmas because of digging through the leftover Halloween stuff. Yeah. What is your go-to? It's Snickers. Is that is that your Halloween candy of choice? I'll do a peanut butter cup. Uh, mm. I'll uh, I'll I'll go Twix. Uh, I, I'm not afraid of a Starburst. How about you? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm old school. I like the Snickers. I like the fun size. I tell myself I can have thirty of them. Because each one is smaller, and so... So it's only like uh, eating 10 Snickers bars. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, which is, you know, typical for me. Are you doing anything with trick-or-treaters this year? I am going to put out a hopeful bowl of candy. Oh, okay. You know, like on the porch. Although, even in normal years, we don't get that many trick-or-treaters where I happen to live. So my guess is it'll be down this year. Mm -hmm. So that means, of course... My candy intake will be sky high. (laughs) Uh, Hey, you ready to do the radio show? Yes, let's do it. Molly, are we recording? Yes, we are. All right. Take it away, Elena. 
from PRX, it's Livewire! Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire House Party! This week with filmmakers Christina Constantini and Kareem Topsh, plus singer-songwriter and creator of the Broadway hit Hades Town, Anais Mitchell. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, live and direct, it's the host of Livewire, Lou Hey, thank you very much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. This is our uh, Halloween show, although we're trying to keep things from being scary because real life is actually plenty scary. Word. (laughs) Uh, We uh, asked the Livewire audience what their most memorable Halloween costume Mm. was, Mm -hmm. and folks have been sending in their answers. we got some real doozies uh, this week. (laughs) Uh, First, though, let's answer that question. Elena, what is your most memorable Halloween costume? Oh, uh, easy. Um, So I think... My first few Halloweens, I wore the same costume because I don't know if it was my mother or my grandmother, but it was this very beautiful 70s, elaborate, raggedy Ann dress thing that I think I also wore like just out as like a fancy (laughs) dress. But you know what I really wanted was those store-bought plastic, Yep. you know, you buy them at the Woolworth, right? And Mm -hmm. my fifth Halloween, I got one of those, Smurfette. (laughs) <laughs> she was the most glamorous blonde in the world when I was five years old. So it was like a plastic Smurfette mask with that elastic thing that goes around the mm-hmm. back of your head. And then like this like vinyl flammable smock that kind of looked like <laughs> Smurfette's dress. And I wore that thing to filth. I would put it on in November, December. It's quite warm in Charleston, South Carolina in the, in the winter. <laughs> and I would get in the sprinkler with my second most prized possession, which is this like wraparound see-through umbrella. And I would just frolic for like months in the sprinkler with my Smurfette costume. And the neighbors never opened their blinds. Like- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that you were smurfing adorable. Oh, I tried. I tried. How about you? What was your most memorable Halloween costume? This is a pretty easy question for me to answer because I only actually dressed up one time as a kid. What? My parents were like, you know, evangelical. And so they were not into Halloween right. too much, you know, sorcery and evil spirits. But one year I was allowed for some reason to actually dress up and go trick-or-treating, but I had to be a character from the Bible. Mm. So I was a Roman soldier, which like those were the bad guys in the story, but I guess that was permissible. <laughs> and the the rule was I also had to collect money for UNICEF mm. like mm-hmm. while I was trick-or-treating. So my dad made me this little outfit out of cardboard, this fake armor. I had a cardboard sword Aww. and a helmet. But I was a very sheltered kid. Like, I, we didn't get to watch TV or movies. So the things that were scary, like, really scared me because mm-hmm. I wasn't subjected to much of it. So I get together with this group of kids, and we go to the first house <gasps> on our route. And the woman there opens the door, and she's dressed as a witch. <gasps> And she has a cauldron, which she must have had dry ice in or something, because what my memory was like, you know, smoke and toil and bubble came <laughs> came out of the cauldron. <laughs> she made a witch-like sound. I lost it. Oh, Ran no. home. I just like put deuces. <laughs> I sprinted home in my cardboard armor, oh. got under my bed into a sleeping bag, oh. Elena. Under the bed in a sleeping bag. Uh, that was the one time that I actually dressed up for Halloween as a kid, and it, it's still very memorable to me because it was such a disaster. How old were you? I like 17 or 18. Yeah, yeah. Fair. <laughs> what are the listeners saying uh, are some memorable costumes for them? Well, uh, 
These are great. Uh, A lot of great ones, both adult costumes and kid costumes. Here's my favorite kid costume. In 1985, says Julia, I was a pirate. But my mom didn't want me walking around with impaired vision from the eye patch, so she just (laughs) painted it on. (laughs) Wow. So she gave her kid a black eye. (laughs) (laughs) I can't tell if that's like over-parenting or good parenting. And I'm sure when she was going around, like all the parents were like, what are you dressed up as? <laughs> <laughs> what are what are the other listeners saying about memorable costumes? Here's a cute one from Benita. Benita says, I have no idea why, but one year in elementary school, I dressed up as a tooth. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> That's great. I would pay to see a photo of that. I bet that was the weirdest, most confounding looking. Because like, that's not an off the rack item. No, you, you can't. Know? And you can't. It's not like robot where like, you know, you can take the boxes yeah. around your house and make a robot mm-hmm. shape. A tooth shape is is not found in in a lot of <laughs> no. household products. <laughs> no, I bet you that picture is a classic of Bonita. <laughs> uh, one more quick one before we get our first guests over here. Oh, here's a great one. This is an adult costume. Uh, Tracy says, well, my husband is a great sport. So we went as Tony and Candace, the two women's bookstore owners from the TV show Portlandia. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> women and women first, I believe. Is that yes. the name of the bookstore? Yes, yes. Um, also, I love them and will probably turn into them. Do you know... That me and my wife dressed up as those characters. Uh, one Halloween, we were in Portland. It was like 8 o'clock at night, and I looked at my wife, and, and I was like, you seem a little down. And she was like, yeah, I don't know. It just it would have been fun to dress up. This is actual on Halloween. And Whoa. I was like, let's see what we can do. We went to the Fred Meyer. Mm-hmm. We went into the women's clothing department, and we found basically the kind of clothes that those two characters from Portlandia would typically wear. And we got dressed up as adults and just went and had a beer, dressed up like the Portlandia characters. Nobody knew what to make of us, but it did improve my wife's mood. <laughs> hey, speaking of costumes, uh, the subject of the documentary that our guests were going to bring on made was very much known for his costumes. Uh, they included some pretty spectacular capes. Elena, do you remember Walter Mercado? Yeah. <laughs> prominent figure of my childhood TV channel surfing. Uh, For those who don't know, he was this astrologer and this television personality and he basically became this like cultural phenomenon first in kind of the Latinx community and then uh, in the wider world because he would go on all these shows like Sally Jesse Raphael and Mm -hmm. Sinbad (laughs) you were mentioning he was on Elena. Yeah, he told Sinbad that he would be the greatest comedian of his generation. That was his reading for Sinbad. Yeah. Well, we'll call that one a hard maybe. Um, And then the thing was, he just kind of disappeared, uh, which got Christina Constantini and Kareem Topsh interested in whatever happened to Walter Mercado. So they tracked him down. They made this amazing documentary. It's on Netflix right now. It's called Mucho, Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado. Christina and Kareem, welcome to Livewire. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Uh, Where are you both at right now? I'm in Los Angeles. And Karim is in the lovely Miami. <laughs> mm. And Kareem, you turned the fan off for our audio recording purposes, which in Miami is like the ultimate sacrifice. So thank you for doing that. This is to show what a true Livewire fan I am. Hey! I am willing to sit and swelter for public radio. Gotta love a fan who turns off the fan. There you go. <laughs> and you know who else would probably do that would be Walter Mercado. Like, I feel like this guy got entertainment. Hmm. First of all, I was obsessed with Walter Mercado as a kid, but I feel like I'm a little bit older than both of you, Kareem and Christina. Um, 
and Elena and I both, we were talking earlier, like we remember being kids and seeing Walter Mercado on things. How did the two of you become aware of him? Because again, I think you're both a little bit younger than us. So, you know, we both grew up with Walter because I don't mm. think that I don't think that there is you could be Latino and not have grown up with Walter under the age of like 75, maybe. Mm. He, was, <laughs> he was just a constant presence on Latino television. And similarly, um, Christina and I are uh, I'm a bit older than Christina. Uh, and <laughs> even then we had the same exact experience, which is like every afternoon, quarter to six, our grandmothers would shush us. Bring us in front of the TV for mm. Primer Impacto, which I call Latino hard copy. And, <laughs> totally. And then Walter Mercado would all of a sudden come on. And God forbid if you spoke during those four-minute segments, uh, mm. he mesmerized us. So uh, we really don't remember a time when he wasn't a daily presence in our lives. Mm. And you're right, Luke, he's a consummate professional. He would, every day that we were with him, even though he was, you know, 87, 88, he would mm. hate, he would hate to hear me say that. But <laughs> even though he was old, he was, he gave us everything he had and he would wear these heavy capes. The capes are 15, 20 pounds, some of them. And he would dance around and he would, uh, you know, in the Puerto Rican humidity. Uh, mm. So he, he was, I think, the most, a professional person we'd ever met, you wow. know. I feel like they don't make them like that anymore. <laughs> totally, like an old-fashioned like show person, like that that comes through in the film. These mm -hmm. moments where you can, you know, he's he's not young when you're shooting him, and and yet you can tell that he's like he's asking questions off camera and and sort of thinking what's the shot here, mm -hmm. what's the best way to be the most kind of performative in this moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, he was the hardest, you know, I used to be an investigative journalist. I've worked with, you know, executives who are great at dodging questions and drug lords. Huh? And he is the hardest person we've ever, <gasps> I've ever worked with because he knows exactly what you're filming. Like at all times, there's mm. never a moment where he doesn't understand his angles. And so when he sees a camera come out, he automatically goes into like his shtick, which was, uh, you know, his hands doing these amazing yes. things. But you, it was very hard to capture him in kind of an unfiltered moment because he, right. he, didn't, he didn't really want that. And so it was uh -huh. really hard. How did you get to uh, a place where you could ask him some questions and get some answers that you, you thought would help the film? I think for one is just the trust that you build as like documentarians with your subject. Like we were with uh, Walter and his family and his team, you know, in a two and a half years uh, wow. all the time. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, we kind of became extended family and we're led into, uh, you know, private spaces, but also we just tired him out. I mean, we were <laughs> relentless, you know, right. we had to keep asking the questions and sometimes he could see that we were frustrated and other times he was just aloof about it, mm -hmm. maybe on mm -hmm. purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but we kind of explained to him, like, you know, we wanted to do something that was different. We wanted to kind of get to the man behind the cape. Um, and I think that sometimes that, that registered and other times it didn't. But uh, it's, it's part of who he is. And I think our persistence and the time we spent together paid off. For the, you know, people who may not know who Walter Mercado uh, is and was, can you give a little bit of his uh, biographical uh, backstory? Yeah. So Walter was... Um, a Latino superstar. He was uh, a, an astrologer and um, and a performer. His background was as a singer and an actor and a dancer. I'm sorry, not as a singer, as an actor and a dancer. He was actually a really bad singer. Um, <laughs> really? No, he released an album. So, he did? You know, he did? That's right. 
Technically, it's true. Um, just technically. Um, in the sense that we're all singers. Because he was also a singer. You know, he's, he's probably somewhere in the great beyond observing this whole thing, Kareem. So you got to be careful, yeah. right? I, I think you'd be okay as long as we don't focus on his age. We could kind of right. talk about anything with Walter. Just don't talk about his age. <laughs> so he was this, this TV personality who came into our homes and, like, you know, gave us our astrological horoscopes every day. But really what he was uh, was, you know, he's kind of like the first great motivation speaker mm-hmm. like through these messages for libra and sagittarius and whatnot uh he was telling us that he knew today was difficult but tomorrow would be a better day and he was instilling this inspiration and this hope and uh and this ultimate message of like the importance of love mm-hmm. and he was hugely famous i mean people can't understand mm-hmm. how big he was at the peak of his career uh he was in 120 million homes a day it's like the super bowl every day All right, we need to take a a very quick break. This is the Livewire House Party. We are talking to Christina Constantini and Kareem Topps. They are the filmmakers behind the Netflix documentary, Mucho, Mucho Amor. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic Drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to Christina Costantini and Kareem Topsch, uh, the people behind the documentary Mucho Mucho Amor about Walter Mercado, the uh, psychic from uh, Puerto Rico who uh, really kind of captivated the world for a period of time, including me as a kid, seeing him on like Donahue, mm-hmm. I think. Sally Jesse. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> like he, he really made the rounds uh, for a while. Uh, but uh, Kareem and Christina, it sounds like growing up in uh, Latino households, it was a whole other level of Walter Mercado. Like what was the way that he kind of bridged the generational gap in a, like a Latino household? Yeah, you know, our grandmothers loved him because he was, you know, this very fancy, refined man. He has, he in the way that Liberace had mm-hmm. this, like, you know, little old lady following, Walter also had a little old lady following. And I think, you know, in my, my grandmother's mind, he was the most refined. He was like, he, he has kind of a religious look to mm-hmm. him, like, you know, popes kind of dress like him. <laughs> and then I think for kids... We were enamored with him in the way that, you know, we were also enamored with the Big Bird or Mr. Rogers. He's like some right. combination. He is incredibly visually compelling. So when you look at him, you, you can't look away. And his outfit changed every day. He was incredibly aware of his medium and, and would curate this kind of 
this this curiosity about what he looked like and and what he was going to wear that day and and how many rings he had on these fingers and then you know he brought to this this immigrant community largely immigrant community a lot of hope when our families really needed it and so mm. um he had a power over all of our households and uh i think we all all kind of share this our grandpas liked to pretend that they didn't believe but they always would kind of like gravitate towards the television <laughs> when he was on and kind of pretend not to be listening but it was like just in case, yeah. just in case he's right, like uh, I better find out what's going to happen for Libras this week. So uh, there's no comparison to to, to yeah. him. Uh, you know, we say Oprah, Liberace, Mr. Rogers, and Big Bird. That's mm-hmm. if you combine them all into one specimen. <laughs> but and, and also make it kind of gender bendy, right? Yeah, he was really the first person who ever came on television. And not just Latino television, really, and, and television in general, who was challenging the notions of like masculinity and femininity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think for us growing up, we weren't sure is that a man? Is that mm-hmm. a woman? You know, is he from Earth? He was just so <laughs> otherworldly, right? Not just from the gender expression, just, you know, male or female, he, lo- he looked like no one else you had ever seen. Uh, and so he really kind of was the first person who, you know, in a mainstream way, challenged the gender binary. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I was really fascinated with him as a kid, because I just I wasn't quite sure. Is this a, a man? Is this a woman? Like the filter that he, I assume, would request for a lot of the shoots, you know, it was very sort of um, Elizabeth Taylor white, white diamonds. diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes. It was extremely like a lot of Vaseline on yeah. the lens. <laughs> Yes. Oh, my gosh. One of the most fun things for Kareem and I making this was going through all the old archival and looking at all of the different looks. He was always trying to achieve new Mm -hmm. and different worlds, and and, and they produced a lot of their own stuff. So uh, there was one under the sea episode that was shot from entirely behind a fish tank, and the fish would, (laughs) would swim in and swim. They were very creative. We're talking to Kareem Topsch and Christina Costantini about their film Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado, about the uh, Puerto Rican psychic Walter Mercado. Uh, we were talking earlier about how when I was watching this uh, this film, I was reminded of the fact that mostly what he did was really sort of motivational speaking. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I remain to this day a person who doesn't really believe in astrology, but like the stuff he's saying, like, I'm a Taurus. And whether I believe that my, you know, star sign is indicating it is sort of separate from the idea that, like, I felt really pumped up hearing him talk to Tauruses about, like, the fact that we can do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, if you listen to as many readings as Kareem and I have during the process, you start to pick up on a lot of similarities, which is that basically every sign he tells you, even if yesterday was hard, tomorrow's going to have be a better day. You're going to have a good week. It's, you know, practice love and work hard and be mm-hmm. nice. And, you know, he, 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 he basically said the same thing over and over again. Kareem but, and I, by the way, are not huge believers in astrology, but it had the same effect on us, mm-hmm. you know, even in person when we worked with him, he gave us our horoscope readings and he told us, you know, he told us both that we were creative but difficult. Uh, right, Kareem? <laughs> Does that check out? We hated to agree with him, but it turns out he was 100% correct. But he also said, it's going to be a great year for you. Great things are coming. And you want to believe that. You need hope. Life is hard. What's the archival situation with his work? Is is there like a Harry Ransom Center for his TV shows? 
yeah, under his bed in Puerto Rico for a very long time. <laughs> um, it was, you know, that was a, a one of the challenges. First of all, was that he was on television for 50 years. He had hopped around uh, different channels. He had produced, produced a show in, in Puerto Rico for years, and he was producing in the state. Um, so Walter had a, kind of a great archive of photographs and newspaper clippings. Video was harder to come by. So we did a lot of hunting all over his house and uh, talking to anyone who might have something. And that's how we uncovered what, what we do have. Wow. Um, yeah, it's it, it was it was a lot of work and it was a lot of hard work. And some of our sources were like VHS tapes that we found hidden behind a book, of, you know, <laughs> on whatever uh, in oh a closet God. a year and a half after he told us he didn't have anything. We oh, would yeah. find these things. Oh, wow. He would say, I don't know. I don't have any of the shows from the 90s. And oh. then, you know, we'd be in his room and it would say like, 90s shows. <laughs> Walter, what is this? Is this your 90s show? She's like, oh, it must be. It was a very, yeah. But it was, it was good we spent so much time with him because at first he, he told us there was nothing. There was no archive left. Also part of the film, by the way, we're talking to Kareem Topsch and Christina Costantini about uh, their film Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado. Part of the film is is it gets into sort of he lost his name for a while, right? Professionally because of of, of, of an unfortunate business deal. Yeah. So there, I mean, you know, when we thought out to make the film, we wanted to kind of tell the story of his unlikely rise to superstardom. But we also wanted to explain what happened because after mm-hmm. decades on television and a huge fan base, he basically disappeared overnight. And so what we what we learn and what viewers see is that it was basically a uh, business deal gone sour with his mm-hmm. former manager. And from one day to the next, he lost the ability to use his name, Walter Mercado, his, which was his birth name, was also a trademark. And uh, in essence, it forced him off of television and into a legal battle of many, many years and many millions of dollars mm-hmm. that uh, ultimately I think, you know, not just didn't just cost him his fame, it really did cost him his health. Mm. Did you sense that spending time with him that he was uh that had really taken a toll on him? Yeah, you know, I think I think it was hard for him to he's he is a creature of love. Like that is the that is the I think feeling that comes most naturally to him and that he would prefer to practice every day. And he doesn't he doesn't like thinking about the bad times. He doesn't like, you know, fighting. He doesn't like um, you know, so so these years and years of um legal battles were really hard on him mm. in in you know, in a professional sense, but I think more in a personal sense. Bill was very dear to him. He was he was like a, a, a son of sorts. This was his manager who who sort of uh, you know ultimately took his name and his kind of professional um, reputation, I guess. Exactly, and I think for Walter it was a betrayal of sorts, and uh, and uh, it was very difficult on him. You know, a lot of people are confused about why Walter won't say any negative things about Bill. You know, he, he really doesn't like going into any of those details. And I think it was very much like a divorce of sorts where there was like a lot of love between these two, you know, people and then things fell apart and there's still a a great amount of love and respect. And, you know, Bill is in the film telling the story of how wonderful Walter is. So it's a very complicated and sad event that happened in Walter's life. Mm. Uh, it's interesting, Christina, because you you talk about Walter like he's uh, still here, mm-hmm. um, and he passed away. Do you feel like I mean, is that part of the Walter Mercado kind of mystique? Like he's still sort of in the ether somewhere? 
Yeah, you know, I love when he says, I used to be a star, but now I'm a constellation. <laughs> uh, I think oh, that's he, so powerful in the film. Yeah. And, you know, he, he very much believed that he was like a beam of light without endings and beginnings. And he crossed through mm. the astral plane of Earth for just a small period of time. So mm. in, in his view, he never he was never born and he never died. And so, mm. you know, in honor of Walter, I think I like to believe his legend of himself. Uh, Kareem, you were a pallbearer at his funeral. What was what was that like? The the funeral in in general must have been quite the event. Yeah, you know, it was it was really surreal in so many ways. We had finished our uh, cut of the film and submitted it to Sundance mm. on November first, and on November second, Walter died. Mm. Mm. Um, and then we all went to Puerto Rico. Uh, to be with the family and um, and to be Alex, our Alex Fumero, our producer, and I were pallbearers, and um, it, it was just you know the the rush of the emotions. In one sense, I think that we felt Walter knew his job was done. He knew that this was kind of be his kind of great last big hurrah. Uh, and once the film was finished, he knew he could kind of uh, go on having completed his work and being there. Um, and seeing just how much he meant to everyone. Uh, and, you know, even more so than in the island, just seeing how the world reacted. You know, there was obituaries and op-eds in the New York Times and in the LA Times and mm-hmm. actually newspapers and, and news media all over the world covered it. And it just reminded us how much Walter meant for so many millions of people. Yeah. But at least through mucho, mucho more folks can get a little bit of that Walter magic and that Walter love coming through the TV screen Amen. and uh, and reminding us that uh, we could all be a little magical as long as we live with love. <laughs> mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, the film is Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado. It's on Netflix if you want to check it out. Uh, Christina Costantini and Kareem Topsh, thank you so much for being on Livewire. Thank you. Thanks for having thank us. You. We're thrilled. That was Christina Constantini and Kareem Topsh right here on the Live Wire House Party. Their documentary is Mucho Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado. I'm telling you, Elena, if you need a pick-me-up, like we all do these days, watch this film just for the sort of motivational speeches Mm -hmm. from Walter Mercado. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're going to put some pep in your step. (laughs) Uh, It is out on Netflix right now. This is the Live Wire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, as we do each week, we ask the Live Wire listeners a question, uh, which they've been answering through social media. The question this week was, what's your most memorable Halloween costume? Elena, uh, what are folks reporting? Okay, here is a very extra one from John. Um, okay. But bear with me because the, right. I love a Halloween costume with multiple reveals. So here we go. Okay. <laughs> In the first year of psychology grad school, I decided to go to the student dance as the id, the ego, and the super ego. First, wearing no mask, I arrived in my best beachwear, an open shirt, shorts, and sockless in boat shoes, and danced as sexily as I could. And then after about 45 minutes, I changed into a regular student with khakis, button-down shirt, and sweater, dancing with customary restraint, and then finally changed into a tuxedo, complete with shirt and studs, suspenders, cummerbund, and bow tie, and I tried to dance like a snob, but nobody noticed my changes, and then giving (laughs) up, I danced as wildly as I could. I ripped open the pants of the concert tux that I had saved for 10 years, and somebody asked me if I was okay. (laughs) 
So he went from id to ego to super ego and had the clothes wow. to back it up. I love it. I feel like that's a costume or an outfit choice you're going to spend a lot of time explaining to people. Yeah. What's going on? I'm glad that we, uh, as a radio show, were able to honor this. I feel like this yeah. has been probably years and years that this listener has been wanting to <laughs> spread the word on this very elaborate costume. I was at a party a couple of years ago, and the rhetorician in my department showed up in a full tuxedo with tails and kept on handing out little note cards that said, I'm sorry. And he wouldn't tell anybody what he was because I think he believed that the strength of his rhetoric should have been enough. But he was a... <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, know, I know. He's a great guy, though. He was... <laughs> A formal apology. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great! I might steal that actually. Um, what's another uh, memorable costume from our listeners? This one is also high concept. When I was little, I dressed up as Pirates of the Carabiners, so a pirate costume <laughs> with dozens of carabiners of various sizes all over me. That's from Brandon. <laughs> I like it. That's very clever. Uh, okay, one more before we uh, get Anais Mitchell on. Here's one from Jane. In college, I dressed up as a hunter with fake whiskers, totally passed as a guy, and I put lollipops in my ammo belt. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like the hippies putting the flowers in the uh, Right, National in the barrel Guard's of the gun. gun. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this is the Halloween edition of Livewire. And, like, what is spookier than Hades? You know, the underworld and the sulfur, all that stuff. Uh, our next guest actually wrote the wildly popular musical Town. Uh, which won the Tony for Best Musical. It also won seven additional Tonys, which is, you know, NBD. Um, And she has a new book out. It's called Working on a Song. It's this very fascinating look into the creative process behind the musical. Uh, The show is adapted from a Greek myth that's set in the underworld, uh, which, you know, they're building a wall, by the way, in Hadestown, which (laughs) seems to echo real events. Uh, She was also named to Time's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. Uh, it's super exciting to have her on the show. Anais Mitchell, welcome to Livewire. Luke, thank you so much for having me. I, I have to say that I was sort of uh, a late uh, arriver to Town. I mean, I'd heard uh, about it and I'd heard about all the Tonys, but I started listening to the cast recording in preparation for this and I was totally blown away. It is incredible. Congratulations. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. There's like various recordings. You know, you, you, when people say they've listened to the mm. recording, there's there's the Broadway one. There's also an off-Broadway recording of some of the music. And there's a studio record from 2010. So right. you never know what people have heard. Um, let's start kind of at the beginning, though, of the idea of Town. Where did you first get interested in this story of, of Orpheus and Eurydice? Yeah, you know, I think like a lot of... Um, like a lot of creative work, like the, the, the very origins of it were um, pretty mysterious. Like I was driving in my car. I was in my 20s and I was just embarking on like a singer songwriter career. And I, I would drive these crazy distances just like for a tip gig. And um, I was in the car and these lines just dropped into my head uh, and they had a melody and they were they went um Wait for me, I'm coming. It had this that melody. Mm-hmm. Um, in my garters and pearls, with what melody did you barter me from the wicked underworld? Those were the first lines that came. And and they didn't end up in the show, but they sort of pointed the way, like the wicked underworld. It, it, they pointed the way to the Orpheus and Eurydice story. And it was just one that had always like captivated me as a kid. I remember seeing it in like a children's illustrated book of mythology, um, 
And so I kind of was like, huh, and started to follow the thread. And, and I got excited about the story. Um, first of all, got excited as a songwriter to, to try to tell a longer form story with songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just, I think the age that I was, and it was sort of like, um, the, the Orpheus character is this, this young, idealistic, creative guy. He believes if he could write a song beautiful enough, he could like change the rules of the world. I find it to be such an interesting topic for first an album that you wrote. Like when you sort of had the idea, did you think Greek mythology, this is going to be a big hit? (laughs) I'm sure I wasn't like uh, that self-aware or, you know, when aware of what, what it was and how it would be received, it was just a sort of a mysterious impulse. And, um, and early on, you know, I was living in Vermont, which is actually where I am now again. Um, Mm. And I, I had these friends, like I roped in a couple of collaborators very early on. One was the, the early director designer of the show, um, called Ben Matchstick. He was like a bread and puppet guy. And then, Mm -hmm. um, one of the two arranger orchestrators, Michael Chorney has been with the show since the very beginning. And, um, these were guys that were living in Vermont and they were like, sure, you know, we'll work on this thing. And, um, we just like got all of our friends to sing the different roles of the characters. And we, were you playing Eurydice in the original versions? Indeed (laughs) I did. Um, and I, and like, I remember booking the date, like I booked some dates at a labor at the old labor hall in Barrie, Vermont and the, um, and the, Opera House of Virgins, Vermont, which is like 10 minutes from where I grew up, um, before I even had finished any, you know, I had maybe like three songs and I booked these dates saying like, I'm going to do this folk opera. <laughs> um, so it was really like a sort of leap and the net appears type of thing. And, and it was very DIY and it was a lot of like goodwill from like the community and our friends to make it happen. Obviously there were many more chapters after that, but that's how it began. Uh, this is the Livewire House Party. We're talking to Anais Mitchell, who wrote the musical Hades Town and has a book out called Working on a Song, the Lyrics of Hades Town. I was wondering about that because in this book, you write a lot about the collaborative process and all of the revisions and everything. And it's like, this was your baby. You thought this up when you were driving in, you know, <laughs> the rural Northeast or whatever. And then all these people now kind of have an opinion and a say. Was that hard for you at all to, to sort of share this thing with all these people that collaborated for for Hadestown, the the big Mm. musical on Broadway? That's a good question. I mean, I think collaboration is um, is magical and also like the most difficult thing, right? Uh, there, you know, and there was all kinds of learning curves from the beginning with that. But but you know, from the beginning, there were a lot of people involved. You can't really put a musical on a stage without a lot of minds being part of that. And so, yeah, I think most of the journey that appears in the book, the working on a songbook, mm-hmm. takes place in New York. Um, and it's you know, so after these early Vermont shows I, I made this recording um the studio record that came out in 2010 of the of the piece as just like an audio document um and then a few years later I was still like wanting to develop it further and find the right partners for that and I I met um the director Rachel Chavkin um because I saw a, a, a version of Natasha Pierre in the Great Comet of 1812 this incredible mm-hmm. Dave Malloy musical that she directed and I saw it off Broadway at the Ars Nova Theater with like 50 people and I fell totally in love with it and was like this is this should go to Broadway <laughs> and it, and it ended up going to Broadway and uh Rachel has this like really uncanny ability to shepherd a piece 
sort of as far as it can go commercially without sacrificing what was sort of you know, unique and edgy about it as a mm-hmm. downtown thing. Um, I saw that in Great Comet and, and I and I wanted that for Hadestown. And so so she's she's very present in this book as well as um, a dramaturg that we worked with named Ken Chernelia and, um, and the producers that we were working with, one of whom um, is named Mara Isaacs. And those guys were like, I call them team dramaturgy and, they, and the, the mm-hmm. book is dedicated to them and they... They appear in a lot of the pages of the book because um, I was coming to this project as essentially, you know, from the music world as a songwriter. And what I knew how to do was to write, you know, a a three minute song, a three and a half minute song. And that's sort of what I love about this so much, though. Like it it doesn't sound like a lot of other musicals that I've that I've seen and heard. It has this other quality to it. And I wondered if that was because you're not somebody who started out writing Broadway musicals. You were writing albums. You know, you're a singer-songwriter. It's a, it's very interesting how the paths of like the music world and music theater have intertwined and kind of diverged over the years. Because there was a time at the beginning of music theater on Broadway, I'm I, I'm talking about something that I'm not an expert on, but where like the- well, you only have like twenty Tonys. I feel like you have <laughs> you know some expertise in this area at this okay. point. Well, I read a thing one time about how like initially the stage was where you would debut like a new song and it was all about a standard the standards you know and a lot of the sort of early musicals were kind of iffy dramaturgically speaking because they essentially were just like a vehicle for these songs and then at a certain point those worlds diverged and it was like every song that was getting written for the theater had to be doing so much work on behalf of the drama, on behalf mm-hmm. of the storytelling, right. that it could not it could not stand alone. It couldn't be repurposed, you know, mm-hmm. for a wedding or a funeral or, you know, a protest or something like that. And I think the music theater has a sort of, you know, there's a push and pull between you want to write a song that's going to do the work you need it to do for the drama, but you also just want to write a great song that someone's going to pass on to someone else, you know? And that certainly I I encountered that with making Hadestown and how to um, take these songs that were, they were structurally built to be song songs and then having to kind of explode them in different ways and add like intros and outros and interludes and stakes and um, whatever was necessary so that there would be like a, a result at the end of the song, like a revelation or a result so that we would feel we'd arrived someplace different than we began. And that is what drama really requires of us. So these are things you would learn if you went to like grad school <laughs> for music right. theater. But for me, I was getting a crash course in it. And and that's what the book is about. Uh, we're talking to Anais Mitchell, who, whose new book is working on a song, The Lyrics of Town." She wrote the musical. Um, one of the uh, memorable songs from Town is uh, Why We Build the Wall, which you wrote back in like 2006. And it's for people that haven't seen Town, it's basically Hades builds this wall to keep his enemies and undesirables like out of Town. Um, that feels like an extremely relevant thing in the current version of American politics that we're living through with the current president. Um, did that add a kind of a layer to the song and to when it was performed, you know, uh, on stage? Cause I mean, you couldn't have called it more <laughs> accurately. For sure. And let's hope that, you know, when we come back, <laughs> when Broadway comes back, it will no longer be uncannily relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when I wrote it, it was actually like it was one of the only songs that I wrote really fast. Like I'm a very slow writer. Lots of second guessing of, <laughs> of ideas and lines and then like, you know, going down wrong roads and the book is all about that. But this song really sort of emerged fully formed and almost before I knew what it was, um, what it was about. And um, I want to say 2016 is when we did this show off Broadway for the first time. And so Patrick Page was suddenly singing that to an audience every night as Hades, um, Why We Build the Wall. And, um, and that was during the campaign um, and then subsequent election of the, of the president. And, um, it certainly landed in, in a really different way and, and, and was very chilling. And, um, I remember after that sort of wondering, should I be kind of retrofitting the show to be more about this political moment? Because it was still all, you know, evolving and in flux, a lot of things changing. Should we be tailoring that character more to, you know, the present moment and realize like, no, that's not, that's not what this is about. Like, it's a myth. He's an archetype. Mm. A wall is an archetype. And, you know, he's not the first one to use that imagery. It's a, it's an image that um, people use because it, it's powerful and it, and it works well on people who f- are feeling vulnerable in some way. And um, so, yeah, we, we, we decided let, let Hades be Hades. And, um, you know. Yeah. Okay, we've got to take a, a quick break. This is the Livewire House Party. We are talking to the singer-songwriter Anais Mitchell about her Tony Award-winning musical, Hadestown. Uh, We'll be right back with more conversation, and we're going to hear a song. So stay with us. This is Livewire. Back in a moment. Special thanks this episode to On God Sing of Portland, Oregon, and Wendy Wharton of Vashon, Washington. On God and Wendy are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting the show with a donation each month. And we are very, very thankful for that support because it's how we are able to keep doing the show. So a big thanks to On God and Wendy. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Anais Mitchell, who wrote Hadestown and has a new book out, Working on a Song, The Lyrics of Hadestown. Um, Broadway musicals are a are very expensive uh, to put on, and many of them don't break even. Uh, I mean, it's a real kind of a long shot thing. Were you kind of shocked at just what a hit Town was? Like, what were you expecting going in or what were your hopes? Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I was surprised that a show that came from such an unconventional kind of background and path could be a commercial success. You know, this show, um, it, it came from the wild woods of Vermont and then it was developed by a lot of kind of downtown style artists who maybe disdain like the commercial <laughs> formulas for success and I, I'm grateful that I think everyone that was working on it was trying 
their utmost to make it into the the fullest version of itself, not mm-hmm. try to fit a round peg in a square hole or, you know, make it fit some sort of cookie cutter formula about like what a, what a Broadway musical should be. Um, but there were a lot of like challenges in terms of the rewriting. It was like, let's um, essentially take what had come from a very abstract world and mm-hmm. make it more and more concrete, but in the right ways, you know, to try to make it a more generous act of storytelling for people and to fill in the right blanks um, without like spoon feeding <laughs> the audience. Yeah. So I'm so grateful that people had faith. I mean, the producers, the investors, like that this could survive on the, in the world of Broadway and, and props to Broadway for being able to absorb, you know, a piece that had come from this path. Yeah, I think this book is is such an interesting look for those of us who don't know a lot about how musical theater gets uh, made. A look into just the process and, and and how much you're thinking about story and how many changes are made to raise the emotional stakes or make something pay off or just have it all work. You know, you go, you sit in a theater, you watch, you're like, well, that was a good story with some good songs. But I mean, it is... Uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears going into the making of something like Hades Town. Uh, what can you tell us about the song you're going to play for us here, Wedding Song? Yeah. Um, so, Wedding Song is a is a little duet between the lovers, um, Orpheus and Eurydice, and it happens in the first act, very early on. Um, this song existed not in the early Vermont versions, but uh, I wrote it for the studio record in 2010. And that's the version I'm going to do, is the studio record version, if I can remember <laughs> how it goes. Um, and it was a song that always kind of worked at a song level, but required a lot of uh, massaging in order to make it work dramatically. All right. This is Anais Mitchell on the Live Wire House Party. Tell me if you can Who's gonna buy the wedding bands Times being what they are Hard getting harder all the time Love it when I sing my song All the rivers sing along And they're gonna break their banks for me Lay their gold around my feet All are flashing in a pan All to fashion for your hand A river gonna give us the wedding bands Tell me if you're able Who's gonna lay the wedding table Times being what they are Dark and getting darker all the time Love it when I sing my song All the trees gonna sing along Bend their branches down to me And lay their fruit around my feet The almond and the apple And the sugar from the maple And the tree's gonna lay the wedding table Feet. We'll lie down and hide her down in the pillow neath our head. 
table And the river I'm gonna give us the wedding band Anais Mitchell here on the Livewire house party playing wedding song from Hadestown. Look, you remembered the lyrics. I remembered them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show and for, for playing for us. What a pleasure. Anais's new book is Working on a Song, The Lyrics of Hadestown. If you're somebody who's obsessed with the musical or if you're new to it, it's a, it's a must read. And uh, until Broadway reopens, you can listen to the cast recording of Hadestown wherever you get your music. All right, uh, Elena, this is the part of the show where typically we give out the audience question Mm. for next week. Usually our social media manager, Ariana Donneville, swings by. But I'm going to just be totally honest. Uh, We have no idea what the vibe in this country is going to be (laughs) next week. So, you know, the election. We, we were running through like 10 possible audience questions and all of them seemed like they could be weird depending on the circumstances that unfold next week. So we are going to hold off on that for now. Good call. Uh, but uh, in the middle of next week, when we have a sense of where things are going, uh, we'll put that out on social media. So please do check up on that and uh, give us your answers to the TBD audience question. I can tell you, you're going to hear some very compelling radio on the show next week. Uh, We're going to have the poet Denez Smith on and also activist Jose Antonio Vargas. And we're going to have music from Angelica Garcia. So it's going to be a great show and we will figure out the audience card. (laughs) Um, All right. That's going to do it for our show. A huge thanks to our guests, Christina Constantini, Kareem Topsh, and Anais Mitchell. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. A. Walker Spring composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director. And she mixed this episode. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank member Richard Helzer of Beaverton, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam. 
you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. <laughs>